Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me in them to the Old Testament book of Job. And if you have trouble locating that book, open to the middle of your Bible, and you should be somewhere around the Psalms. And it's the book immediately preceding the Psalms, the Old Testament book of Job. And I encourage you to follow in your own Bibles as I read audibly from God's Word. Job chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down that it will sprout again and that its tender roots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea, and the river becomes parched and dries up, So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your your wrath is past, that you would appoint me at a set time and remember me. If a man dies... Shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of God shall stand forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Would you... Unite your heart with mine in prayer. Our Father, we confess that as we come to your word, we feel once again the limitations of our own minds. And we feel, O Lord, as well with shame, the remnants of remaining sin upon our minds and our hearts. And Father, I would cry out of the felt consciousness of my need as a creature and as a sinful being. And ask, O Father, that you would be pleased to neutralize all of those tendencies that would go in the opposite direction and that you would set your truth before us in all of its beauty and light and drive it home to our hearts with power by your Spirit. Father, enable us to mark 
your word aright and to hear it, O God, as those who hear for eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my text for this morning is taken from this 14th verse of the 14th chapter of the book of Job. If a man dies, shall he live again? There are fewer questions, if any, that express the apparent hopelessness with which many people live today. It has to be admitted that life is plagued with many uncertainties, the greatest of which is life itself. Life is full of problems and difficulties. We all know that. We give lip service to it. And the questions that we raise, indeed the very questions with which we wrestle and struggle to find answers, are many, many more than those for which we have answers. And it's because of all of these uncertainties and problems and difficulties and unanswered questions that we all struggle to a greater or lesser degree with fear. Fear of all kinds and sorts and shades of gray. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear of finances. Fear of what tomorrow holds. Fear of what we see happening in the world around us. Fear of what we see in Washington, D.C. Fear for the safety and the well-being of ourselves and our loved ones. What does tomorrow hold? But the one fear that places all of these other fears in their proper perspective is the fear of death. The fear of what lies beyond the veil of the grave. We cling, you and I, with mind and might to this present existence because it's, it's all that we know. It's all that we've ever experienced. And whatever other fears we may face and fight, however many we may confront and conquer in this life, there's that one fear that always lingers on ever before us, dogging continually our steps, because it alone lies beyond the realm of living experience, the grim and the frightening reality of death to which Job alludes in verse 14. Now, I suppose that most of us, if not all of us, who have at least the passing acquaintance with the Bible or in some measure familiar with the sufferings and the trials and the troubles of this man named Job. Indeed, his very name has become a proverbial synonym with the worst of human pain and suffering, so much so that even James, while taking pen in hand to write his own epistle, where he is instructing his readers regarding the personal need for their, in, their, per, their endurance in the Christian faith. He writes to them to remind them that though their troubles may toss them this way and that, nonetheless they've heard of the perseverance of Job, James 5. He wants to remind them that Job persevered through his trials. 
And we see that God is at work in this man's life. God is not very often at the forefront of what we see going on in the book until towards the end of the book. Job's been asking, where's God? Where's God? Well, God shows up on the scene. (laughs) And he has a few words to say to Job, but all of that is toward the end of the book. But right now, Job is going through torment. And oftentimes in our own lives, we cannot see the hand of God at work in our lives. But as we were reminded this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism, God is at work in the most uh, minute details of our lives. And James wants to remind us through his raising the example of, of Job that in the end, we're going to see, as we do in the book of Job, that God is very compassionate and merciful towards his people. Now, as one begins to read the story of Job, and this in the first place, you know, you go to seminary and you learn how to construct sermons, so to speak, and don't think I ever learned how to do that. So uh, I just call the points as I go across them. And this is the first point. It's in the bulletin. Fred asked me to send you some points, so I did. Now, as one begins to read the story of Job, you can see at the very beginning, there's this prominent feature that comes to the forefront. There is no room for doubt whatsoever that this man, Job, had entered into a very personal relationship with his creator. Indeed, what we could call a devout relationship with his creator. Verse 1 of chapter 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man, and remember this is God saying this, that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and shunned evil. So right away at the beginning of the book, we are given this clear insight that though Job shared in the fall and transgression of all humanity as the posterity of Adam, and that he was now presently in the state of grace and favor with God. He had been reconciled to God. So whatever uncertainties or problems or difficulties or questions, Job was to face hereafter and make no mistake. You see it repeatedly throughout the book. There are many. It's as though God wanted to make it abundantly clear from the very outset that none of his troubles were to be attributed directly to the consequences of his sin. God himself establishes his own witness, the fact for the record that Job had God for his witness, that he was a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and who shunned evil. This man Job was a godly man, and yet suffering came. Why? You read the entire book. And you never see any answer as to why. But as you read and pray and search this book, 
it becomes increasingly obvious that God has a mind to prove something in this book. Not to himself, but he has something to prove to the devil and to ourselves. Namely, that he can place far more in a man than the devil can place on him. And we see that comes through over and over again in Job's life in this book. Now, it's not my concern to labor that point this morning because it would really require an altogether different sermon. But suffice it to say that we must remember that and bear it in mind that God is not merely some innocent bystander or spectator to what Job is enduring here. God is actively involved even though we don't see his hand at certain times. And though it becomes very conspicuous to us that Satan has launched an all-out assault upon this man, nonetheless, God is busily at work behind the scenes, unknown, bending, yes, even the devil himself in submission to his will. And he is displaying the majesty of his power and the wisdom of his providential dealings among men. That in the first place. This then in the second place. I love to read the story of the book of Job, and I love to do so for a number of reasons. But I suppose the greatest reason why I do is because his life stands as a monument before us to the fact that God's grace is sufficient to face every difficulty and every trouble in life. Who among us here this morning cannot in some measure identify with Job? Who among us has not shared something of his feelings, of his anger, his frustration, his hurt, his desperation, his sense of hopelessness at times? Job, in many respects, is someone with whom you and I can readily identify, at least up to a certain point, given the extent of his sufferings as a man upon whom God had in no uncertain terms set his approval. You see, you can't even get past the second chapter of the book of Job before you find him confronted with more grief within the span of just a few moments than perhaps most of us could endure for a lifetime. I mean, four messengers come to him, each one the bearer of bad news, each one the bearer of worse news than the former bad news carrier, and each one bearing bad news of catastrophic proportions. And there one had completed his shocking report, but the next person arrives, interrupts, and begins to tell Job the worst thing that has happened over and over. And Job's soul as a godly man is riddled and ripped apart with machine gun intensity as they relate to him the shocking reports. Job disobeys. They have stolen your oxen 
and your donkeys. Job, the fire of God, has fallen from heaven and has consumed your sheep and their shepherds. Job, the Chaldeans, they have raided your camel herds. And they have plundered them and they've murdered those who watched over them. And then comes the final blast that cuts right through the heart of Job. News that no loving parent ever wants to hear. Job, your children were eating and drinking in your oldest son's home when suddenly this great wind came in from the desert with such force and intensity it brought the roof down on their heads. Job, they're all dead. Can you imagine this? The loss of his family. The loss of all of his possessions. All of it comes upon him in just a matter of a few moments. When it storms, it roars. How could a loving God, that's the first question that comes. How could a loving God permit something like this to happen? What comfort could you possibly offer a man in the face of such devastating circumstances as he's confronting. Dear people, the truth is, and I'm not telling anyone this morning what you don't already know, life can deal some of the most difficult and crushing blows. What do you say to someone struck with such disaster? Well, I'll tell you what not to say. Don't say, well, that's just one of those things. (laughs) How many times have you heard, that's just one of those things. You've got to face life with a stiff upper lip. Is that a godly response to disaster? First response to disaster is that we need to bow our heads in humility before God and confess that we're His, we're His creation. And then we... The best thing to do would be to search our hearts. But here is a man who God had already placed his witness. This is a godly man, and yet suffering came. And you surely don't say what Job's wife said to him. Apparently, she had concluded that God is not a loving God. For in chapter 2, we find that Job is sick not only in heart, but also in body. And he's sitting there on a pile of ashes. And what is he doing? He's scraping with a pot shirt these boils that now cover him. The scripture says, from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And his wife looks at him and she says, Job, give it up. Curse God and die. Just give it up. And Job's response on this occasion is the voice of faith in the face of apparent hopelessness. He looks at her covered in boils, and what does he say? You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive adversity, evil? 
And then God adds this editorial comment in his word, as it were, to hurl it right back into the face of the devil who's looking on. He says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's an amazing story that God sets before us. It calls to mind the words of the psalmist in the fourth psalm. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That then in the second place. Now we move to the third point. Job is approached by these three so-called friends in the book. It says that they just came and sat before him for seven days and seven nights without uttering the word. And why did they sit there for seven days and seven nights? The scripture says because they saw that his grief was great. (laughs) It's not like us. We just rush in where angels fear the tread lots of times. But they sit there in respect. They said, here is a man who has really suffered. And when they do begin to talk, it is Job who begins to speak first. And that opens up a dialogue between Job and these three men. And here's a way to understand the book of Job. And I got this little insight from Calvin and uh, read his little book, Sermons on Job. And uh, (laughs) I was slow. It took me about three or four times in different places reading the same thing that I finally picked up on it. But he says, here's how you understand the book of Job. He says, Job has himself for an attorney. And what did I say about a man who defends himself in court? You have a what for an attorney? A fool? Okay, so Job, he's going in there, and this is what is happening. He's arguing a good case, but he's pleading it poorly. The three friends are arguing a bad case, but they plead it well. You would verily think that everything they say is absolutely true of Job. And lots of things they say are true, but the accusations they make against Job are not true. They plead a bad case well. And so it is in the midst of one of these exchanges that Job begins to rebut the charges of his accusers here in chapter 14 that they've leveled against him. And even as verse 1 begins, it's obvious that Job is addressing himself to the emotion of human hopelessness that arises out of the uncertainty of life and the certainty of death. He says, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He's speaking out of the felt reality of his own experience. Trouble has broken in upon him like a thief in the night and made itself his unwelcome companion. Death has cut off the lives of his children and has made his wife childless. Now Job proceeds to illustrate what he is saying in verse 2 and this in the fourth place. And he uses three common, very common figures from nature. Back to back. First he says that man is like a flower that comes forth and he fades away. 
Now, we all know some, we all have some familiarity with the lifespan of a flower. Generally speaking, it blooms with life in the spring, and for a time, it offers its beauty and its fragrance to its surroundings. But its life is short-lived, for under the sustained heat of the summer, it eventually begins to wilt and dies with the coming of fall. And when winter arrives, its beauty and fragrance is but a passing memory. It is come and gone with the changing of the seasons. Job is comparing man's life to that. And then he uses another analogy from nature. He says, a shadow. What is a shadow? Why, a shadow is something that is born in a day and it dies in a day. And Job is calling our attention to the reality that life is temporal and transitory. If a man dies, shall he live again? He knows that Death is a grim reality, but is hope after death a reality? Notice what he says in verse 7. For there is hope for a tree, and this is the third illustration from nature. For a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, that its tender shoots will not cease, though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground. Yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and the river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. In other words, Job is applying what we today would call the scientific method, the gathering of data, of information in terms of what can be seen and observed. And on the basis of what can be seen and observed, he is then able to draw a conclusion on the basis of what can be tested and demonstrated thereby. And he says when you apply the scientific method to something like a tree, well, the evidence is conclusive. There is hope for a tree. There's hope, he says, for a tree. Observe this fact of nature that though a tree may be chopped down with nothing left standing, but a stump in its wake, for all practical purposes, appears to be dead. Yet, the possibility of hope exists for the very moisture in the air to resurrect its apparent dead roots and cause it to sprout forth new branches and leaves, thereby demonstrating that a tree seems to have this unique ability to undergo the perpetual cycle of life and death and life again. But he says if you attempt to apply the same test to see if such hope exists for a man, he says there is none. Moisture may resurrect the tree, but neither rain nor a flood will raise a man from the grave. 
You see, when it comes to answering the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? You cannot answer that question on the basis of the scientific method. Science, true science, as I said, deals with observable facts. The scientist observes in his laboratory. He studies, he experiments, he comes up with a hypothesis, a theory, and then he tests it, and he tests it, and he tests it again because he wants to be certain that he knows what he's doing and that his conclusions are true. But he's always dealing with observable facts. Now, science in our day, this is my own private opinion, you may share it, Science in our day has left its realm of discipline and has assumed the godlike stance of omniscience as if it knows all, sees all. These poor fools that present us with a few pieces of rock from the moon and pronounce the moon then to be four and a half billion years old, assuming you see that certain factors in their dating process and all those factors that we now know have been true for all of those years. How do they know? It's kind of like God, when he shows up on the scene with Job, he says, Job, how do you, Job, where were you when I made the world? So they're no longer scientists, but they become speculative philosophers, and they ought to declare themselves as such. Now, the problem with with approaching the question of death scientifically is that you only die once. You only die once. You see, you can't wait until all of human history runs down and every last human being is gone and then come back with some observable data and say, well, this is the way it is. (laughs) This is the way it is. God doesn't put pen and notebook in hand and bid us go to the domain of death and take notes and then come back and share them with us. No, there's a finality to death which makes it impossible to address this question by means of the scientific method. If a man dies, shall he live again? Science cannot help us. You have to look beyond what you cannot see. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul begins to tell us in 2 Corinthians 4. He says there are two sets of realities. There's a set of reality of things that can be seen. He says, but there's another set of realities. And they are things that cannot be seen. And Paul says you need to learn to fix your eyes upon those unseen realities. And you think, well... They're not real. And Paul says, no, they are real. He says, they're more real than the things that you can actually see. And you say, how so, Paul? He says, the things that you see are temporal. They're passing away. But the things that you cannot see are eternal. And Paul drives that point home so that we fix our eyes and look at what we should be looking at. And he's telling us that though we live in this natural world with its own set of realities that can be seen, there is another world of reality, that spiritual world of unseen 
realities. And he's not simply telling us that those things are real, but that they're more real because they're made of the substance of eternity. When Job asked the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? He's not looking for the answer that science has to offer. He's struggling to find the answer that God offers. In the midst of life's trials and difficulties and uncertainties, in the face of death itself, he's asking, is this all there is? The grim reality of death, is it as final as it appears? Is there life after death? And if so, is it a quality of life that we would look forward to beyond this present existence? At every funeral, you and I instinctively wonder concerning the deceased, especially if this is a loved one. What has become of them? Where are they now? Is their death as hopeless as it appears? Will I ever see them again? And the ghost that haunts you as the years pass by and you see the the dirt shoveled over one loved one after another. It begins to dawn on you that sooner or later your number's coming up. And what then? You cannot avoid the inevitable reality of death. Some people think it's morbid to talk. I think it's biblical to talk about it. We need to come to grips with unseen realities this side of eternity. And the Bible says it is appointed once for man to die, but after this, the judgment. As surely as death is inevitable, judgment is inevitable. You'll stand before God in judgment one day. And what education cannot teach you, death will demonstrate to you. I remember the first time the apparent hopelessness of death struck me in a personal way. My grandfather died when I was age 11. And it was the very first time I ever saw my father break down in uncontrollable tears. It devastated me as a child. And I remember going to his funeral, and I remember standing, I was sticking close to Dad. And I remember my dad, he was talking to someone. He said, he's gone, but I'll see him again one day. And the question that raised in my mind as a child, if a man dies, will he live again? Maybe not coined in the exact phrase of the text, but the the very question that Job asked. My response was, I hope so. Maybe. But alas, how can it be? And then I remember going back to the same cemetery to witness the burial of my own father. And here I was as a man preparing for the ministry. And the face, think death looks hopeless, people. Death looks hopeless. But there's someone who offers hope. And I love the words of Jesus 
to Martha. He says, do you believe, Martha? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. He looked at, he says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, my friend, I ask you this morning, in spite of all of your fears and your doubts, in spite of all of your sin and shame, do you have the calm assurance that when you die, you'll live again because you know the one who was resurrected from the dead, even the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus went to the cross to die for sinners, to die for such as the likes of you. And he stands before you this morning in the gospel. In the gospel, he stands before you and he bids you to come to himself. And the only thing from the human level, I'm not talking about the divine. The only thing from the human level that stands between him being yours and you being his is that you are not willing to come to him. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, I would encourage you in the language of Charles Spurgeon, run to him. Run to Jesus. You will find in him a merciful and a very compassionate Savior. My friend, you need a redeemer like that. I need a redeemer like that. And perhaps the Lord is speaking to you from his word this morning. And perhaps he's speaking to you louder and clearer than he'll ever be pleased to speak to you again. I would encourage you to make the most of the overtures of grace. Run to Jesus. He alone has power over death and the grave. And for those of us who have suffered the death of loved ones... Jesus offers us comfort too. How does he offer us comfort for our fear? Simple. He says in Revelation, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace and comfort that the gospel of your Son reveals to us poor sinners. We praise you for a mighty and yet a tender and compassionate Savior, our great high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses and infirmities. We thank you, Father, that when dark providences touch us with their mystery and misery and pain and heartache, and when they threaten to overthrow us, that such circumstances, O oh God, become part and parcel of the very path by which the Lord Jesus comes to our hearts with fresh and new discoveries of his grace. We thank you for giving us the story of this man, Job. Help us, Father, to lay hold of his words 
that he knew that his Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the last on the earth and that through the skin has been destroyed, yet in his flesh he shall see God. Father, help us to embrace that reality and lay hold of the answer that you gave your servant Job. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.